Blog Talk Radio. My brothers and sisters, fellow entrepreneurs around the globe, it is 0600 hours Eastern or Romeo for you nautical types, 1000 hours Greenwich or Zulu time. This is Rudder Radio, your guide to thrive in any economy. I'm William Eastman, Managing Partner for Applied Knowledge Labs North America uh, with offices in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. In the United States, our offices are in Las Vegas, Nevada. Kansas City, Missouri, and our recently opened Atlantic Regional Office in Richmond, Virginia, where today's show is originating. We are a business research company, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, that is changing the formula of success for companies from zero to 50 million in revenue. And I'm going to be your host for the next 30 minutes. Today's show is around culture, your corporate culture. And I'm kind of excited about it because we're rolling out some new stuff, some things that over the last few few years we figured out how to solve. But before we do that, I have some administrivia. So first of all, you can join us live in the chat room by clicking the chat the, the chat now button on our show page at blogtalkradio.com slash the rudder, T-H-E hyphen R-U-T-T-E-R. You can dial in and join us live on the show uh, at 347-215-7471. That's 347-215-7471. You can uh, hit me real-time on Twitter. Just send me a tweet, not a tweet. I am not a bird. At W. Eastman, uh, or W-E-A-S-T-M-A-N. And, of course, there's always our ubiquitous blog. Um, The blog is the rudder, the link is also on the show page, or you can Google this by typing in the Rudder, R-U-T-T-E-R, blog, and it should pop up above the fold. And we typically have, by uh, early afternoon, all the show notes from today's show. So where are we? Well, quickly, quick overview. We are in, a, we are in, a, in the early stages of our third series. We have run two series already. First series was on the stages of growth, which is essential information uh, for anybody to, who's grown a company because if you think growth is kind of happens, it doesn't. Uh, growth is something that's predictable and manageable, and we talk about those stages. So you as the entrepreneur leader, uh, business owner, can understand what those issues are and deal with them in some appropriate fashion. Um, you can go back in the archive section, and you'll find stages one through six um, in there. I recommend if you haven't downloaded and listened to those, please do so uh, in, in, in some short period of time. The second series we did is that we looked at the characteristics of strategy. What made these companies that went from zero to a billion, zero to IPO, zero to market dominators, 
what was distinctively different about their strategies as companies? And we identified six elements that made a difference. And by the way, they are the six elements that we are engaged in. And also, you can go to the archive section uh, off our show page, and there what you'll do is you'll find those. And so I'll leave that there. This series that we're in, and this is show number 10 of 43, are the actual best practices of fast and sustainable growth. And when I say sustainable, I don't necessarily mean in the sense of green, though it could be sustainable means more or less that there's a bandwidth um, that you can grow the company within. If you, if you try to grow it quicker than that, then you're probably going to put yourself out of business because you're going to destroy your working capital. Or if you are on the lower side of that bandwidth, then what that means is you're not taking advantage of the opportunities and any investment that you've made into the company uh, to grow it isn't going to uh, return what it, was, uh, what it cost you. And so what we're doing here is we're talking about each one of those best practices and attributes that make that up. And this is show number 628-900, so if you want to uh, get it at a later date. So let me take this thing of culture. What, what excites me about today's show is that uh, the information that we've been covering, a lot of it has existed, and it's part of how we've been doing business. Um, I can go back as far as almost seven and a half years ago when we first started on this, on this journey. On the other hand is that we're always updating, either reading the research that's going on or conducting research ourselves from, uh, from what we learn from our clients. And, and we're constantly updating our library of best practices. But what excites me about this is that we haven't been able really to tackle the issue of culture in terms of how to measure it. Because in the area of best practices, there are best things that you can do. And you can benchmark against what the best of the best the issue around culture is that there isn't a best culture per se. I'm not going to give you a prescription that says, here is one of the four, what we're going to call archetypes, four different types of cultures. Here's the one you should have. Rather, it is looking at it to say, of the options, this one fits the best. Because if I look at it in a sequence, and I'm going to drill down, and I'll give you some show references to go back uh, to other shows to collect the information, is that your culture, your value proposition, your business model, and your, your brand and your operating principles all need to be in harmony. And if you do that, you've got a very, very tightly focused organization that will not only be able to operate effectively today, but you've built the infrastructure that you can scale. So when it gets larger than your ability to lead or manage, and you have to re rely upon um, the structure and the processes and kind of the norms of behavior in the firm, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And so the case I want to make here before I define what I mean by culture is this. Culture exists in companies like it does in families or like it does in countries. Um, anytime you create entities made up of people, social unit, um, what will happen is that they will develop their own history, traditions, and norms of behavior. So the only question as the owner of the firm is, do you do it on purpose, or is it done to you? And I suggest that you don't want it done to you because you may have a, jam a jumbled mess of stuff that will be very difficult to undo. So let's, with that, let's start here. The culture of a firm, you could basically look at it this way. It, it's its histories 
its history and traditions. It is the ease or difficulty uh, that the organization has of using all of its resources to achieve an end as well as handle the dynamic changes of the marketplace. The culture of a company is the stories, the myths, the, ritual, the rituals, the heroes that are told about the organization. And now, of course, in the early stages, there's not much to tell. But any of you who are renegade from large companies, you know that there are icons and cultural heroes inside the firm. And when people tell those stories about the firm, what happens is that it, it says something about what the company is. Uh, my favorite one to start with, to give you an example, is the story of Federal Express and Fred Smith. And uh, I, still, <clears throat> I still get choked up when I tell the story because I completely understand what this means. And the story goes that most of you that, that do not know the history of Federal Express, uh, Fred Smith was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, came back after the war, went to school at the University of Tennessee, and had this idea for Federal Express. Now, what was interesting about it is that nobody was clamoring for overnight delivery service. And so he wasn't responding to a need. He was going to build a company that was anticipating, as we've talked about before, competing in the future, or going to where the puck, in a hockey sense, going to where the puck will be. And so he wrote a paper in graduate school. His professor didn't think very much of it because it was around the business design for Federal Express. And so most people said it wouldn't work. Well, Fred got it started. He had a couple airplanes. They operated out of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which is where he wanted to be. And then finally, um, they, they were going, and they, were, they weren't doing great, but they were just kind of sustaining themselves. Because whenever you become, whenever you're a new entrant in the marketplace and you're creating a new market, it is a very, very steep ramp curve before you can get the break even. Well, as happens in all these businesses, even though he got financing, he ran out of money. And his bankers were in Chicago. And so what Fred did is he um, flew to Chicago. He was out of money. He needed to get more working capital because as it stood on Friday, um, on a Thursday when he flew to Chicago, he couldn't make payroll on Monday. Well, at the end of the meetings on Friday, what happened was that there was none of his bankers, none of his financiers, were willing to pony up any money. And now here's Fred, who has made a commitment to his employees, and he can't make payroll. And he's sitting in the airport in Chicago getting ready to fly back to Memphis. And he's sitting there thinking about what he's going to do because he's really, right now, he's out of options. And as he's looking up at the, at the, at the uh, flight board, like all we all of us do about the uh, is our flight going to arrive on time so it can take off on time? He sees a flight to Vegas. And now, uh, what you didn't know about Fred, and I didn't tell you this, that part of the story, is that most people in the military, uh, you while away your, your um, non-action hours by playing cards. Most of us learn to play cards in the military. I did. And Fred was a pretty good blackjack player. And so he said to himself, that not being able to make payroll and money was unacceptable. So he got on a plane, changed his tickets, got on a plane, flew to Las Vegas, played blackjack all weekend, and made enough money to make payroll. He flew back on Monday and was able to pay his employees. Now, think about the power of that story within the organization and what does that convey to people. And what that said to people in FedEx 
which is part of their operating principles, is it absolutely has to get delivered on time. And Fred made a commitment, and he honored that commitment, and FedEx has a culture of honoring their commitments. So that gives you some sense of what I'm talking about. Now, as we talk about culture, um, and I'll have this up on the blog site, but what I want you to visualize is there's two dimensions to culture, two things to consider. And view this on an XY axis. So if we look at the Y axis, the vertical, the up and down axis, I want you to visualize in your head the dimension called social ability or friendliness. And what that means, it's a highly sociable environment, it's a pleasant working condition, and it fosters creativity and willingness to go to extra miles to complete your duties. And so on the high end, you've got all those characteristics, and of course, at the, at the bottom of that, of that vertical axis, you have very low amounts. And so what you've got is a fun, pleasant, great place to work. The downside to that is that, taken to the extreme, is that there's a tolerance for poor performance. Now, how does that happen? Well, what becomes, what becomes critical here is the issue of getting along and relationships. And so what happens in those organizations is they're willing to tolerate not just eccentric people or eclectic people, people kind of out of the norm, but they're also willing to tolerate people who perhaps are not great performers. I worked in an organization for a couple of years that was like this, and it was a fun place to be. Uh, the people who started the company used to work in academia, and they tried to kind of bring that collegial academic environment to the place, and there were a lot of good things about it. But on the downside was is there, there was a tolerance for people who failed to perform. And the challenge you had is if you were a hard charger and the business unit that I was the managing partner in, uh, we were occupied, that place was occupied with hard chargers, is that we have low tolerance for poor performance. And so what you would do is you would, if somebody didn't do their job and get something done on time, you'd get on their case. Well, guess what? Is that the topic of discussion within the organization would not become why it didn't happen. The topic of discussion became, well, you should have given the feedback in a nicer fashion. And so that is one dimension. The second dimension is the, uh, the, X, uh, the, the X axis, the one that is uh, horizontal or laying flat, is one that measures collaboration or cooperation, solidarity, another way of looking at this. And this is about continually working together to achieve common goals, uh, willing to work whatever it takes to get the job done. And on the high end, you've got this hard-charging demand to do things, but on the other hand is that what you have here is the issue of uh, if you're outside the norm of behaviors, if you don't fit that mode, it's a fairly oppressive place to work. You can guarantee or you can un I think you can predict that there's a very low tolerance for poor, for poor performance. And so those two dimensions create for us four potential types of cultures. Now, I want to come back to something I said when I started, and that is there is no right culture. There is no culture that you would say to yourself, okay, this is the, this is the right culture for my company. Um, you can't say that. The culture that is right for your company is based upon the marketplace that you're going after, what value proposition you've decided and a value proposition, we talked about that in show 609-887, and that basically says you have three ways to compete. You compete on price, which means you run a very tight organizationally um, 
or operationally focused, very efficient organization. Option two is you're a product leader. You offer killer products and services in the marketplace. Or your third option is that you're customer intimate and that you provide an incredible experience. Well, I think you can quickly see is that if, if you compete on one of those, it'll kind of drive you to have a certain type of culture. And where most companies get really screwed up is that the owner, because of all the other things you've got to worry about, um, doesn't consider this and they get a culture that doesn't fit their value proposition. Or we talked about what the brand attributes are. What, what do we want to say externally about the nature of our company? Well, if your culture and your brand don't fit, you have some significant problems there as well. And so there is no right culture. So there's two things that we're going to measure here. One is fit to your business model, and that is going to be appropriateness. And the other one is your ability to adapt to the changing marketplace, and that is flexibility. But before I go there, um, what I want to do is I want to talk about the four types of culture. And as I go through those, what I want you to consider is which one of those either fit your company or which one of those would you like to create. But before I do that, I just want to talk briefly about the company, my company, our company, Applied Knowledge Labs. I said we're a business research company. Let me, let me turn that into English, and that is what we do is we do two things. Um, we, we read the literature of what's going on around fast and sustainable growth. What are the success factors of small, fast-growth companies? How do, you, how, do you, how do you ensure, if that's in, even possible, but at least how do you improve the odds that you can take your dream and all the risks that are involved with going in business for yourself and making that dream a reality and creating wealth for yourself, your family, and your employees, your investors, and whoever has got a stake in your success. And that's what we do. So view us as an information refinery, just like a, 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 a energy refinery takes crude out of the ground. We take crude out of the ground, the research, either done by other people or we do it ourselves. But you can't use that information, just like you can't burn crude out of the ground in your car. And so what we do is we take it and we process it, and we turn it into heating oil, uh, kerosene for uh, for aircraft. We turn it into diesel for uh, trucks. We turn it into gasoline for cars, and we do the same thing here. We have two principal products. One pr product number one is around assessments and surveys. And what we do is we give you your readiness for growth, and say, given what you're trying to accomplish, here were the here are the obstacles to growth. Here are the opportunities to accelerate. How do you remove the obstacles? How do you take advantage of the opportunities? That's where we go with our, our surveys and with our assessments. And then we have some do-it-yourself products that basically say, hey, if you want to fix your own company, here's the things that you can do because we are data atheists. And what I mean by data atheists is that I don't care what your data says. So therefore, you're not in a mode of defending yourself. My job is, our job, is to provide you the most accurate picture possible so you can make better decisions about how to grow the company. So if you're interested, a couple things you can do. One, you can go to our corporate website, which is appliedknowledgelabs.com. You can drop me an email, which is eastman at aklabs.org or aklabs.org. Or you can call us on our Skype hotline, and, um, which is manned about 18 hours a day at 804-471-1660. That's 804-471-1660. Okay. The four types of culture. So let's go through this. One, one type of culture, and again, none of these are good or bad. It's all about the appropriateness 
um, to your organization. One is power. And what that is, is it's, it's an organization where power is centralized around a charismatic leader. You know, somebody who is decisive and acts unilaterally. In other words, they don't ask other people what they think for the most part. They have a vision. They say, we're headed here, and they paint it, and they have the ability to bring people together. And, and one of the characteristics of this culture is you kind of work till you drop. Now, as the company grows, that, that kind of stays because that type of uh, charismatic leadership to the firm helps it move forward, and at some point it gets bigger than the than the business owner and the leaders uh, can manage. It's a way of providing control without without directly controlling people. Um, the downside to this type of culture is that typically it's highly political, and so there's lots of politics going on and a lot of people butt kissing or trying to curry favor. And so what happens here is that you want to get close to the people in power because that's how you move ahead. Um, what you find here uh, is in organizations that, in entrepreneurial organizations, this is one of the two types of cultures you find in entrepreneurial organizations. Um, the other place that you find this is in the military. As somebody who spent some years in uh, on active duty in the U.S. military, I can assure you that this is how things operate, and the old axiom applies here. He who wears, or she who wears the gold, makes the rules. So that's one cultural type, and that's typically low on sociability and low on cooperation. Second one, is a rule-based culture. And that's a highly structured environment with clear goals and objectives and procedures. Everything's kind of written out. People are judged solely on whether or not they meet those goals and objectives. And so the key issues here are consistency and dependability, as opposed to the power culture, which is more of an allegiance to the, to the leader and the willing to do anything that the leader asks. Here, it's, it's whether or not things consistently happen and they dependably happen. Now, this one is usually fairly low in cooperation and collaboration and usually low in risk-taking. Um, you basically say, that's not my job. I have a job description. It says I do the following things, and I kind of don't deviate from that. Um, where do you find this? You find this a lot of times in manufacturing uh, organizations where it makes sense. You're part of this long process. Each machine does a certain thing. There's very tight controls. If you don't do it exactly right, then whatever step you had in the process can't be passed off to the next step. You also find this in unionized environments, um, uh, simply because what does the union negotiate for? Well, well, most people will say that the union negotiates for pay and benefits, which is true, but the real issues that the union negotiates is for workplace rules. And so it would make sense if you think about why unions have had an easier time in manufacturing than they have been in service-based companies. It has to do with the fact that unionization, because of its attempt to control how work is done, works in an environment for which that is the culture. And so, again, not good or bad, that's another one. And so you see uh, the rule one, low in cooperation and low in sociability. Oh, by the way, on, on the power, I had it wrong. It's higher on cooperation and low on sociability, so it'd be kind of plotness. And again, I'll have this on the blog site. Uh, the third one is an achievement culture. And this is where you work hard to achieve the goals and, and better either your group or the organization as a whole. Uh, you, get, you have highly motivated people who need little to no supervision. Rules and procedures in this environment are limited. Uh, in fact, and any rule that gets in the way is violated and nobody's held accountable to it. Now, just as we talked about 
and the power culture is your allegiance to the leader is where the reward system is, and the rule culture, consistency, and dependability is where the reward structure is. And this one is getting things done. You get rewarded. The more you get done, the more you put on your plate, the more you can eat, the more you get uh, rewarded. This is a very highly competitive type of environment, and what you find here is people suffer from a lot of burnout. Um, also, these environments are typically reasonably high um, on the issue of conflict. Okay? Now, where do you find this? You find this in entrepreneurial companies, and I'll come back to why you find a couple of different cultures in entrepreneurial firms. You find this in organizations that are driven by sales. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is probably the predominant culture of sales-based organizations. And you find it in organizations that um, are high in R&D, uh, research and development. And then the last one you have is a relationship culture, which is a community of people who support and trust each other, is high levels of cooperation. <clears throat> Everybody comes together an idea and do anything to, uh, anything to resolve the conflict. There's good communication and excellent service. It creates a nurturing environment. And there's some blurring between, and it's done on the downside, there's some blurring between uh, the professional world and the personal world. Now, the upside of this, where is the reward resolution of conflict? The more that you can keep conflict at a low end, and this is the example I was giving you before of a company where I was a managing partner in a business unit. And what we had is we had an achievement culture within a relationship culture, and our business unit was constantly at war with the organization. And eventually, the way that they dealt with the war is they did away with us, even though we were their fastest-growing business unit and had the highest gross margins. So that, that says something for how, what the power of culture can be in a firm. You'd be willing to, to sacrifice success and money to maintain the culture. Downside to this one is that it's slow to make decisions, and it is not task-focused. Okay? And then what you'll find is that high levels of personal differences actually hinder work because of this environment, you can't service your conflict. You can't bring it out to people and say, I'm having a problem with somebody because, again, as I, the example I gave you before, is that people don't focus on the issue. They focus on the relationship or the treatment. And so you get a lot of, you get a lot of different camps and people don't like each other. And the conflict you would think gets resolved, it does not get resolved. It is kind of glossed over. So we make nice with each other. Now, those are the four options. So let me come back to the appropriateness here. And that is, which culture works for you? Well, it depends upon what you're doing as a company. So I said, number one, what type of customers are you going after and what is your offer? What's your value proposition? So, for example, let's put a couple together really quickly here. If you are into operational excellence, in other words, your, your goal is to compete on price because you've become the lowest cost producer, and so you can offer an attractive price that's competitive with higher margins or a price that's lower than your competitors with the same margin they're getting, you find that the cultural fit here is a rule-based culture. Now, I know this because... That value proposition is the primary value proposition that we compete on at Applied Knowledge Labs. Our number one thing is we're the lowest cost producer because of who we're selling to. Small businesses, they don't have a lot of discretionary money. So what you, what you, what you sell has to work. Rule-based culture works. In a, in a product leadership 
the second value proposition. Product leadership, where you, where, you, where you basically offer the best stuff, you find is predominantly in achievement cultures. So the achievement culture works very well here because what you're constantly trying to do is make it better, 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 better. And then the third type of value proposition is a customer intimate, where it's the experience the customer has with you. Well, obviously, then the best fit there is relationship. And of course, the same thing happens over on your brand attributes, is that if you are rule-based in your culture and you're going after price, then the attributes around brand, ruggedness, toughness, is something that you build something robust. If you're if your culture is achievement and you're doing that because you want to be a product leader, then it's competence is one of your brand attributes. If it's a relationship-focused culture, um, and that fits the building an experience for the customer, then sincerity is one of those brand attributes. What I'd recommend to you right now is that if you want to get more at the value proposition and how it fits culture, um, go back to show number 609-887, and you can find it in the archives off the show page. And if you're interested in tracking back on brand attributes, that's show number 628-895, 628-895 on brand attributes. That's also in the archives. And, of course, I didn't even get a chance to get into what are the core values of the company. It has to fit all that, and you need to put those four together. And that's at show 597414. And so the summary that I offer you is this. You either have culture on purpose or by default. And I say to you, do it on purpose to make it consistent and in harmony to build a tight company that is really focused on achieving an end. Okay? And with that, what I want to say is that thanks for joining us today. Uh, tomorrow's show is going to be on goal integration. And what that really is, is making the focus of people as they perform simple, taking the complexity out of it. So with that, have yourself a great business day. and. Uh, wealth and prosperity to all.